Hey everybody, welcome to Berg Bulletin. I'm Andrew Orr. I'll be your host for this next foray into intelligent talk. Probably this is intelligent because I let others do the talking mostly. That's not always the case, but when I interview somebody who's pretty smart, I tend to let them do most of the talking. I think that's an old journalistic device that's counterintuitive counterintuitively making me look smarter as well. <laughs> With podcasting, I'm learning all the tricks of the trade. This um, music is Johnny Coleman, who's my old high school coach and teacher. And um, Mr. Coleman has produced two albums in his life, mostly blues music and cute songs like this song and um, it's just fantastic Mississippi blues music um, this isn't necessarily blues right now but uh, much of his music is the blues and he's just got a great um, talent and um, I encourage you to look him up his two albums are actually on Apple and Spotify uh, again his name is Johnny Coleman one album is called Stuff the other album is called Down in Mississippi so uh, you'll have to check that out Let's get right on it. Uh, we continue our series of political interviews. Today's podcast includes an interview with Councilman Robert Blackman, who is running for mayor among maybe five other potential contenders. The other five include restaurateur Pete Bolin, County Commissioner Ken Welch, Councilman Darden Rice, and 20-year-old political prodigy Michael Ingram. There are two other candidates, but they aren't polling anywhere near the leading candidates. And I think Michael Ingram is outperforming all of them. Not all of them in total, but the two that I have not listed. Six candidates is really still too much, and we're going to have a thinning out on August 24th. That's the date of the primary election. Uh, we will thin down to two, and um, word on the street is it's going to be really one of two scenarios. We're either going to have a... Ken Welch, Darden Rice fight in November. They're going to win the primary as this thinking goes. And then they'll compete head-to-head -head in November. And they're two Democrats. Another prevailing thought or school of thought is that one of the two Republicans in the race that would be pete boland or robert blackman 
will win either first or second place and either Darden Rice or Ken Welch will win first or second place. So in this scenario, we would have a traditional Democrat versus Republican facing each other in November. And this is supposed to be a nonpartisan race. <laughs> but uh, let's see what's happening in St. Pete. It's still election, election, election. And it's picking up momentum because we are now just 45 days until August 24th. That's the date of the primary election. Presumably to folks, um, two folks will win and they will have to compete in the general election in November. It's practically a statistical reality that we will have a general election. But technically, it is possible, excuse me, that one candidate could win 50% of the vote. Just don't count on it. There's just too many candidates running. You essentially have the four Democrats on the left and you have got two Republicans on the right. And I would bet to a candidate they all feel they are moderate in one way or another. I think that's what candidates tend to do. Um, appeal to the vast middle market. I don't see um, anyone going to either extremes on the left or on the right. I have only interviewed one Democrat, though, Michael Ingram. So I'm trading emails with one of the other campaigns. But look forward to interviewing all of them. So I really think St. Pete is moderate. Um by and large. Now, what do I mean when I say moderate? Generally, I mean socially moderate. The truth is, however, um, everybody is not just socially moderate. I think all four of the socially, I think all four of the Democrats are socially liberal. And, uh, but I'm not getting the vibe at all that the two Republicans on the right are social conservatives. I think they are generally moderate, genuinely moderate. It's with the Democrats that I have a suspicion there is more liberalness, if you will, among them. So You're going to enjoy this interview today that I have for us with um, Councilman Rob Blackman, Robert Blackman, I should say. 
I noticed I was calling him Rob a few times, which is a terrible habit and impolite. And I apologize for that if he does prefer Robert because he does start out by quoting his name, which I thought was interesting after I had said Rob. <laughs> it's kind of like the Michael versus Mike situation. Have you ever met a Michael and everyone calls him Mike, but they prefer Michael? I don't know if Rob prefers Rob or Robert, but I digress. We did not get into such mundane things in our interview. We kept it very much to the issues. And um, Rob and I spoke actually on the telephone and um, a day before uh, we were setting up this interview and we had a frank discussion. Um, he's very fiery and passionate. Um, and I would say he's more fiery and passionate on the phone. But after interviewing him yesterday, I, you know, he's pretty fiery and passionate in person as well. And when he called me, it was late afternoon. So I'm sure he was really tired, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't know it. I kind of wished he would have consented to an interview right then and there because you could feel his emotion and sincerity as he was explaining details to me about any subject from city council to other candidates in the race to how he felt about how I might have elevated one candidate over him unfairly in the Berg Bulletin podcast. His mind is active and the thoughts were both rapid and yet well organized. He's very intelligent and it was quite the conversation. We got into his career in real estate and his family and why he was running for mayor and and I think I have a much fuller understanding of his entrepreneurial drive and how it uh, took him from flipping properties in college doing most of the work himself and uh, amassing a real estate portfolio in multifamily housing after college he's been very successful in real estate So just think about the last 10 years of real estate in St. Petersburg. Now imagine someone starting at the beginning of that and rolling one deal into another. After lots of construction activity, which is not easy, and growing that stake each time to where he has close to maybe 150 apartments and a $3 million business. Wow. Wow. Not bad, but he brought some friends and family along with him. And um, I had misunderstood this situation to be some kind of Richie Rich, spoiled 
um, rich kid scenario. I don't know where I got that idea, but um, that doesn't seem to be the situation at all. He appears to me to be a very energetic, motivated um, person. And uh, there's no question that he's laser focused on his present objective, which is to be, which is to become everyone's mayor. So I had met Robert once at his fundraiser in downtown St. Pete a month ago. Uh, I had only known him at the time to be a city councilman who answered the call from Greg Haddad, who owns Central Cigars downtown. Mayor Christman's COVID orders were threatening to shut the business down. And Robert Blackman came to the rescue and was able to get the issue to the governor for a quick, uh, maybe not so quick, but not easily secured signature on an order to keep Greg's store open. And the store has been there for 25 years. So... Anyway, um, I was able to get him in this interview to touch on some of this impressive personal history and to expound on some of his issues and ideas that serve as his, count, his campaign's foundation. And I found him to be extremely learned in the issues. Of course, he's been city councilman for two years and... Uh, Perhaps my bias has been that this is a disadvantage to him. Um, perhaps because it suggests a career politician in the making. I'm going to have to re-examine this um, belief of mine because um, he was very learned in the issues and very steeped in the details. Um, and it shows that he has been paying attention the last two years while on city council. That becomes quite evident. So enough of me. Let's get to Robert Blackman, city councilman and mayoral candidate for St. Petersburg. I'm here today with Rob Blackman, Councilman Rob Blackman, uh, who is running for mayor. I appreciate you sitting down with me today, Rob. Um, and joining me for this podcast interview. Um, I know it's uh, hot outside, but it's, uh, it's real, real nice in here. <laughs> um, I thought I would just start off with some questions. Maybe start off with your background. Um, I think people like to know where people are from. So wh what is it you'd like people to know about your background in terms of where you may have grown up? Yep. 
Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. Uh, I've listened to all the other ones, so happy to be now appearing myself. Yes. Uh, Robert Blackman, uh, born and raised in St. Petersburg, uh, born at Bayfront Hospital downtown, uh, went to St. Pete High, graduated, went to Florida State, and came back and started getting Seminole. Into, yep, and, and got into private business here. So um, what, what I've done is even, you know, during Christmases and summer breaks, I started getting into the real estate trade because Graduating high school when I did, uh, 2007, uh, there was a big you know, drop off as we know nationwide in the economy and St. Pete was one of the 20 hardest hit metros in the recession. Um, right now we're one of the 10 fastest growing metros in the country and what you see is desperation which was everywhere in St. Pete uh, breeds innovation and that's how we got to the downtown we have today. You know the 600 block, the Chrislip Arcade was slated for demolition. Uh, it then was that, that plan was put on pause because of the financial situation you know, nationwide and certainly in our city. Uh, artists came in, cleaned it up, and yeah. then we became really a city of the arts. We'd had a lot of cool stuff going. We'd had the bones of it. But we became the city we were today out of that uh, kind of renaissance that actually happened during the complete reset of the Great Recession. Uh, I was one of the people who was fortunate by my age and the timing that I was involved in that renaissance. I was able to move into a lot of different unique neighborhoods. Uh, I lived in Lakewood Terrace. I lived in Midtown. I lived in Coquina Key. <clears throat> now I live back on the west side, which is where I grew up, but the, 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 and that's the district I represent, so I'm a current city councilman as well. But um, you know, one thing I find interesting is uh, you know, when we talk about different issues like Midtown or South Side issues, um, I actually shopped at that Walmart you know, that went out of business at Tangerine Plaza. I knew about the lack of economic opportunity there because I lived there for three and a half, four years. And what I had done is I bought a place that had been boarded up for over 10 years. Uh, it had been in foreclosure. You could literally see the sky through the roof. All the electrical wire had been stolen. The windows had been stolen from metal. The doors had been stolen from metal. Completely stripped. And I renovated this 1958 concrete block fourplex. Uh, the newspaper did a feature on me. I put granite in. I put... Uh, I put new windows in, I put central AC in, new roof, and I made that place beautiful again. And it was right across from one of the failure factory elementary schools. But I'm going on too long, so I want to st stop the intro and let you get to another question. But uh, born and raised in St. Pete, current city council member, the youngest in the 118 year history of our city ever elected to council. Oh. And um, just trying to make some change, you know, that's, it's been a fun couple of years on the council. Um, and I want to try and fight and take it to the next level as the next mayor of the city. Why did you jump into real estate when you were in college? It was all <clears throat> opportunistic. So um, that's one thing I'd like to try and fix is when I was in high school, when I was a senior, you know, I go, I guess I'll go to college because it's a thing to do. I really didn't want to go to college. <clears throat> um, my guidance counselor forced me to apply because I had Bright Future Scholarship. I had, uh, uh, so I got like a 75% or whatever ride. I had right. some prepaid. Um, but I didn't want to go and I, you know, it's because I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do business. I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I always had that kind of, uh, that, that, that dream where you can, you know, the ratio algebra where, where I yeah. can just, you know, make something of myself. And I always had that dream of, you know, oh, going to a, a big company, starting in the mail room and going to the top. But, um, you know, I ended up going to college and, and, and my summers and my Christmases, I'd come back and real estate was just so cheap back then. Mm. You know, I can't tell you how many $5,000 houses I looked at between 2008 and 2012, 13. Wow. Uh, I, bought a, I bought a 1,400 square foot concrete block home 
in Midtown for $11,000 in 2012. Wow. You know, for, that's, that's it's crazy. Not, yeah, it's, it's yeah. craziness. We're talking about less I remember than 10 that. bucks a yeah. foot. And again, it was desperation. Um, our city is doing great right now, you know, make no mistake. And that's one thing people say is, uh, you know, oh, there's this, that. We do have problems, but St. Pete's the best it's ever been. But I believe it's despite leadership a lot of times, not because of leadership. And I just know that when you have momentum on your side, it's easy. You know, you just wave your wand and anything's successful. But we're going to be looking at lean times again here in the near future, and we need to prepare for that. You seem to have gained some financial literacy early in life. How did that happen, and what is your view of financial education in terms of requiring it in grade school curriculum? So, uh, multi-pronged. Um, Big issue of mine. Yeah, first of all, um, I'll tell you how it all started. I was grounded by my parents when I was, I think, 10 or 11. Uh, I snuck down the hallway out of my room. I was so damn bored after being grounded for like five, six hours. Picked up a book off the bookshelf, ran back to my room and read it. I tore apart business autobiographies after that. Lee Iacocca uh, autobiography. Steve Jobs autobiography. Uh, Bill Gates biography. Uh, Wayne Huizenga, a hero of mine, his biography, authorized biography. Um, you can learn so much from the people who have come before you and I always am looking at parallels to my life and my situation and where I'm trying to go. Uh, another, Jack Eckerd, that is one of the greatest books and it's been out of print for years but I give it out as gifts all the time mm -hmm. to people. Uh, for Christmas and for holidays because Jack Eckerd was a hell of a guy and you know he ran for office multiple times ran for Senate ran for governor was never successful uh, but he was successful in his business life and he had principles and he had ideals also the book is just such an easy read some of the chapters are two pages and here's what I love in that book Jack will go here's how I did this he told you but it just worked for me and I right. don't know you do your own thing if you disagree at the very end of the book he goes you know, I became religious and helped my life. But if you're not, whatever, who cares? The guy is, was non-pretentious, non-judgmental, but he laid out exactly what happened for him. A lot of luck, yeah. uh, a little bit of skill, and a heck of a lot of hard work. And that's, I take that you know, parallel very seriously in my business career and also my political. Don't you think we should inject that in school, though, financial literacy? Absolutely. I got off topic there from answering the question itself. Um, but absolutely, 100%. Uh, you know, I had my, we're here at uh, Ruby's Elixir Cigar Bar, Central Cigars downtown St. Pete. I had my kickoff here, and yep. uh, one of my high school teachers was here, uh, Mr. Mr. Bryant, Lee Bryant. He was my favorite teacher in high school, uh, my favorite teacher of all time. And he, um, if you know him personally, he is a pretty far left uh, liberal Democrat. I didn't know that at all in high school because he kept things so by the book, which by the way has been lost. I think a lot of times our Rare. society, he kept it completely down the middle. You would not know how he fell at all. And he was my economics teacher, he was my American government teacher, and he was my uh, comparative politics teacher. I took every class I could with him. Financial literacy absolutely has been lost. He had a stock market trading exercise we did in high school. Uh, I invested in Apple and AT&T and some wow. other stuff. I didn't know <laughs> about stocks. But because of that, I go, you know what? I want to get in the stock market. He motivated me to do that. But we need to also look at basic principles and teach them to kids. Sure. You know, like Budgeting. balancing the checkbook. Right. Exactly. And we are setting a bad example of governments, of course. Municipal government, we basically have to be balanced. We can take on debt and all. Uh, state government has to have a balanced budget. But federal deficit it just keeps going up and up and up. And we need to show, because, you know, there was that famous study 10 or 15 years ago that said, like, what is it, like, 
ninety percent, eighty percent of people couldn't come up with seventeen hundred bucks or something. Oh yeah. In a, in a in a two or three day period. Most people are living week to week. People are living week to week, and they're living paycheck to paycheck. And we need to start educating people about the importance of fiscal responsibility and fiscal stewardship. It's been lost in government. I want to bring it back. One of my favorite shows is Shark Tank, and um, one of the billionaires said that one of the best things that's ever happened to him because of the show was all the young people that come up to them and and saying telling them how much they've learned about starting a business and entrepreneurship and I just think it's so important um, now I may have left people with the impression that things may have been just handed to you in your career did you did you want to correct the record on that well you know it's something I've heard a lot over my life because people don't know people who don't know me until now don't know, you know right. how I got to where I am um, and that's all right because um, you know I wasn't that publicly facing I mean <clears throat> excuse me when I ran for council uh, one thing everybody said was um, you know what have you done in the community I said I've done a lot of good in the community but you don't know about it and I go out and I clean up parks by myself you don't know about that because I don't join organized groups for a resume item you know my true uh, resume was not that that thick and it's because I've always just done the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing as far as business <clears throat> my father uh, is still alive he had been a realtor he, he still is a licensed realtor and does real estate but it's mostly now just you know stuff with family and friends yeah and he had been you know largely in kind of a period of retirement and I said hey the economy's dropping you know you know all about real estate can we do some stuff we partnered on a couple houses where he taught me about construction basics and this concrete block versus frame, you know, slab on grade, whatnot, wiring. What's a good deal? What's yeah, what's not? It? And, we, and we bought a place on Coquina Key in 2008, $62,000. I learned then how to do manual labor myself, uh, did all the painting, did uh, wired up fans, did plumbing, putting up uh, cabinets because we couldn't afford you know, hire and we didn't have the connections. Sold that place for a profit. He, you know, kept the profit, of course because um, it was his money um, right. and then we did two other houses with him and then I really kind of had the bug but you know I'd been doing it only in college you know on, on holidays and <clears throat> summer vacation I get out of college I, I knew I wanted to do real estate and that's actually why I expedited getting out of college I dragged my feet the first couple of years and I really started taking classes you know at a rapid clip I was taking 18 or 24 hours every semester my last two or three to catch up because um, I knew I wanted to do real estate at that point and I get out of college, I said, Mom, you want to do real estate with me, investment stuff? She said, I've always wanted to do that. You know, she was still a practicing attorney. And um, <clears throat> I took a loan, bought a place, it was listed for 165000 in South St. Peter, five-unit apartment complex. I offered 60000 on it to the bank. They countered back at 90, I countered back at 65. They took it, 100000 off list. I was all excited to fix it up, and somebody came along while I was under contract and offered to buy it from me for 90. I said, okay, I'll sell it. So my first deal, 45 minutes later, I made $25,000. Turned around and bought that house I was telling you about. Right. For 11,000, <clears throat> um, ended up selling that place for 35. So wow. uh, basically had 50,000 in the bank, three, four months out of college, uh, partnered with my mom, 50-50 on a place downtown, uh, five unit place, uh, 317 7th Street South, which now it's considered the heart of downtown. 2012 was considered a fringe uh, kind of outlier. Uh, we ended up getting the preservation top award for that. Nine months of sweat equity. I was there. Wow. Mom was there. I was scraping. You know, that's a long project. Paint. It certainly was. It was a frame place. You know, wood frame, but it was over a hundred years old. It was built in 1909. Oh. So, 
it kind of boggles your mind because first of all, you try and strip off all the garbage that's been done, but you've had multiple remodels on a place that's over 100 years old. Yeah. It was remodeled in the 20s, it was remodeled in the 40s, it was remodeled in the 60s, it was remodeled in the 80s. <clears throat> so you take out all the non-historic stuff and then you go, okay, what are we going to do brand new for 2012? And what are we going to do um, that's historic? So we finished the original wood floors, which has been completely screwed up with stickers over them, you know, sticker tile laminate and stuff. Did you keep the floors? Kept the floors, wow. uh, restored the original doorknobs. It had been slummed wow. out for so long that crystal they just painted over it. Wasn't crystal, solid brass. Nice. And I looked those up. I got parts for them. I got them all working. So the, the old, uh, what are they called? Mortise locks. Yeah. The yeah, old yeah. like skeleton keys. House, yeah. yeah, we got them all operable. At least one knob on every single unit. Uh, put in central AC, granite, stainless. Uh, but kept all the original charm we could. Uh, ended up selling that place a couple of years later for, uh, well, we had that place for five years, sold that in 2017 for 750000 uh, And then traded up. It's always been trying to take on no debt or as little debt as possible and trade up equity. Uh, so, you know, mom now has a bunch of assets that she didn't have in real estate. I now have done very well. Dad has, you know, we're all different percent owners and different entities, but, um, and I'm not going to name his name on here, but a, a good friend of mine who's uh, very, very political and very prominent politician said, you know, I supported you for city council. He said, but why the heck are you running for mayor? He said, you're too successful to do that in the private sector. You don't need this. And I stopped him. I said, what you just said is exactly why I'm running. Politics used to be a meritocracy. Right. We've gotten to the point now where it's, well, that guy's likable or he's nice. Let's give him a handout. And, you know, you look at you know, the different positions and elected bodies. Politics was never intended by our founding fathers to be a full-time occupation. Right. And if you look around in the Tampa Bay region, uh, a lot of people, it's their primary income and, and, and it's their primary job. Now, there are certain things, Mary, you basically have to dedicate all your time to it. But you can do it for a period, you can get in, you can get out. Right. So I want to wrap that back around to why I'm running for mayor is I'm already engaged as a council member. I've fought tooth and nail and I've pushed more new ideas than anybody else, <clears throat> certainly uh, in, in the last two year period. And I want to take that to the next level because I'm doing what I can to make a change, but I don't want to spin my tires out here. It's, I have to work three times, four times as hard because I'm a member of a council right now. Mm. And I go, you know what, if I'm already spending all this time, I don't want to wait six and a half, seven years more on council, taking up taxpayer dime you know, to get that salary and then maybe have the chance of running for mayor. Now's the time. We need the leadership now, and I need to step up to the plate. I can't tell you how many other people I tried to recruit to run, and I couldn't get it's anybody impossible. else who, who, was, who was aligned with me and business-minded, and that's why For I every did. one person that says yes, 10 candidates or prospects say <clears throat> no. Now, my friend Keith Gaskin just won mayor in my hometown in Columbus, Mississippi. Small town. He manages like 500 employees now, but St. Pete has 3,100 employees which is a real management job, it seems to me. Lots of personalities, all kinds of career ladders that people are on, every kind of political persuasion you can think of. It's not just management, it's leadership <clears throat> that's required, I think. Do you think you're up for the challenge? Absolutely, so um, the diversity of St. Pete, I've always said, is its strength. Um, I love the fact that we're diverse. And you know, we got asked a question in one of the, deba the debate on Bay News 9 a couple weeks ago about, <clears throat> um, our police force. We have one of the most diverse police forces in the country, certainly as representative of our community, and that's what I love, is our police force and our city government looks like 
the community. Yeah. We need LGBT representation. We need African American representation. We need Hispanic representation. We need white representation. We need everybody in the spectrum covered and represented. Uh, I think certainly I, I am up for the challenge. Uh, if you look at my council campaign, uh, I fought for everything that I, that I claimed I would uh, on council. I've done a lot of good in two years. Um, and yeah, I, you know, I've been a leader, I've, I've run. I know the, the struggles that business owners are having with hiring people right now. I'm having issues hiring. I've also got employees who are very loyal that I've cultivated over the years, and they are fully supporting me in my campaign, but they're also working really hard uh, to, to hold down the fort right. on the business end. But you need to look at politics. Everything in life is about incentivization, it's about numbers, how do you get people motivated? And the way I look at politics is, the city of St. Petersburg is a company, it's a billion dollar company, and the mayor is the CEO, the council is the board of directors, and every single citizen is a shareholder. And, you know, shares don't see color, they don't see, you have to treat everybody equally and just do what's right for the shareholders. So uh, I, wanted, I want to run it like that. You have to be beholden to the shareholders. You have to do what's right for everybody regardless of background. I lean conservative, so <clears throat> I'm personally looking for the next Rick Baker. Uh, I think St. Pete literally exploded in growth in the early part of the century. Uh, how would you be that person, or do you feel that maybe that's not a good model to try and emulate? I love Mayor Baker. He is mentor to me, a very close friend. We talk multiple times each week. Um, he transformed us into the city we are today. I have said behind his back, and I don't know if I ever said this to him, but I think he'd enjoy this. He lit the fuse on the firework that's now exploding today. <laughs> right. You know, he yeah. was the catalyst. He was that spark. Um, and it's all because he's such a planner. You know, I love hanging out with, with, with Mayor Baker because if you ever sit with him, his leg shakes like crazy when he starts getting excited. And it's because his mind is moving a million directions mm. at once. I mean, he is truly, I mean, his IQ is probably off the charts. Uh, he is a genius, uh, and I love Mayor Baker. But I think, you know, you can learn from everybody. I've also learned a lot serving with Mayor Christman. Uh, I've learned a heck of a lot from him. And, you know, when I got asked the other day, he is the tr first true professional politician we've ever had as mayor. There's strength to that and there's weakness to that. He is so well-polished, and there is something to be said about a strong, polished, kind of old-school guy. That's right. what, you know, Christman is. He... He's that traditional, you know, career politician mold. And I'm not using career politician in a derogatory sense. It's just, that's what he is. He's been, you know, in politics since 1999. Right. Um, I am a little bit less polished than Christman or Baker. I know that. But I think my willingness to be open and vulnerable and speak my mind is also kind of what people do gravitate towards. Uh, because I'm not going to sugarcoat how I feel. If an idea is good, I'll tell you it's good. If it's bad... I won't be for it, and I'll always give it to you on the level. And um, yeah, we need to be more business-minded, which is certainly where Baker leaps and bounds succeeded. And he made Beach Drive what it is today, certainly. Yeah, I'm, I'm working on trying to compare the eight years of Rick Baker and eight years of Rick Kreisman, a tale of two Ricks, um, to see the, the differences in the governing style. I haven't I'm not anywhere close to finishing that analysis, but um, my 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 suspicion is that a more conservative governing style is 
is um, is smarter. You know, uh, be be tight with the dollars and don't spend money you don't have, and and um, try not to be all things to all people. But uh, um, you know, I'm of course I'm, I'm biased towards towards Baker for sure. Um, let, let's jump into some issues, starting with crime. Uh, we had a stabbing and a shooting last week downtown. People were also uniformly disgusted at what used to be fun and a safe time at First Friday, which which is not First Friday anymore. What about having more police roaming downtown? So, first of all, we need to hold our leaders, myself included, uh, accountable for what's happening in the city. You know, we were in a debate the other day and Ken Welsh was saying, well, we need to do this, I did that. I was in the trenches, I think he said. 20 years on county commission, and it's like, what is somebody say, dipping your hand in a glass of water. It comes out, the surface tension's the same. Nobody knows anything's happened. I have tried to lead in my two years, and last year when we really had a problem with the protests, we started getting out of hand because I am a huge believer in free speech. All day long, make your voice heard. But when you start having knives going, a gun versus a knife fight, I said this publicly, I said, Far left, far right, Democrat, Republican, everybody who was out there protesting on Beach Drive had one thing in common. They were all breaking the law because they were in the middle of the lane. I said, we need to start enforcing the traffic laws. I couldn't get a second on council for that motion. For over an hour, I argued it. And, you know, the paper said, like, how agitated I was. I was looking at the ceiling, shaking my head. <laughs> that day, the police started enforcing it because they said, this is Blackman's right. He has a point. And we didn't have any problems after that with violence from the protests. Um, what I guess to, to drive home your fact is, we were asked the other day if there was systemic racism in our police department. And I said to Bay News 9, systemic racism does exist in policing if you don't have equal enforcement in all neighborhoods. We need police in every single neighborhood. The only thing that's racist is not putting police in neighborhoods. Because when I lived at the corner of 17th Street and 13th Avenue South, and people were getting murdered all around my house, and you could look at the records. My next door neighbor said, two people got murdered within five blocks a year yesterday. What do you think? Right. I said, well, right now, it's just I try not to mess with anybody. I try and keep it myself. That's not how a neighborhood thrives. When I'm just running to my truck and I'm running back in, I don't like being outside after dark. These were concerns that I had as an individual. And you need policing. Absolutely. Policing is the answer in the short term. Now, in the long term, the solution is economic opportunity. You're not breaking the law. You're not out there stabbing somebody or robbing somebody or selling drugs if you have a good paying job lined up. And that's why stuff like bringing back the Science Center on the west side of town, which I fought tooth and nail for, we need to show people how they can get to good paying jobs. Even in city government, I want to start having people come out and go, hey, I have a high school degree and I'm making $78,000 a year. Here's the roadmap. Because I wish I had that from what I said earlier when I was a senior in high school. If I had a roadmap to success, I lucked into where I'm at today, and literally, I tell people all the time, I was born fortunate because I was born in St. Petersburg. Mm. That was what's been so fortunate. I was able to be born here and make no mistake, I'm only where I am because of my exact age and the fact that the market has trended upwards right after I got into real estate, and it hasn't looked back since. But that's because of the momentum that St. Pete has built. I couldn't have done this in any other town in the country. So we need to make. Well, sure that's a lot of hard work too. I mean, I flipped houses, and it was. There's a reason I don't anymore. It was a little too much stress for me, but um, it, it, it is an awful lot of hard work. So don't discount that. 
um, sewage. Have leaders kicked this can down the road <clears throat> too many times? So that's actually a great point that had be, it had been a dead horse, right? It had been beat pretty hard, and now it's actually, the horse has come back to life. <laughs> and let me tell you why. So we use less water today as a city than we did in 1975. Is that right? We have less water consumption. But our consumption is down because we use low-flow toilets, you know, regulated showerheads, energy-efficient dishwashers, all that nine. But our wastewater is still up. And the reason is we have so much intrusion in private laterals. And if the people listening don't know what right. a private lateral is, it's the line between the street connections and the Parallel lines. Yeah. yeah. So it rains super hard. There's cracks in it. It completely infiltrates that. And we have this huge influx. Now, we wouldn't today have had any sewage dump like we did in 2015 with the capacity we've added. We've added, we're about to add $15 million of storage capacity in uh, the Northwest plant in my district, but we've also replaced a lot of lines. We need to start incentivizing private individuals to replace their laterals like we did with the low flow toilets, you know, starting 10 years ago. How, do we, how do we do that? So we gave discounts, right? We basically gave away free money <clears throat> if you were switching out to low flow toilets. We need to start doing that kind of program and one other thing that's innovative that people kind of laughed at, but I would absolutely enforce this as mayors, we still get fined all the time. You just don't know about it because uh, the paper doesn't cover it. But we get fined $1,000 right. here, $2,000 here, right. 10000 Yep, $10,000 here. We, it translates to, you know, ten, twenty thousand 20000 here and there. <clears throat> we just pay it off. But what I wanted to start doing is you can pay it with projects in kind. What I want to start doing is you can apply for a raffle if you have a private home and your lateral will be replaced if you win that raffle every couple months because we can do that in lieu of paying these fines to the EPA. I would love to do that uh, for one. The second thing I want to do is I don't want to... Deep well injections, which is what we use, a lot of municipalities use, concern me in the long term. We don't know how it's impacting our aquifer. And also we have to ration our reclaimed water during dry events like we had you know, previous to the last right two now. or three weeks. <laughs> we were really dry and we were having to ration stuff. What I would like to see done is, and we discussed this, putting a reservoir, you know, a, a man-made lake or retention pond where we can then vacuum out the water uh, so we always have that retention pond of reclaimed water to use as opposed to just keeping it in vats, we can actually have some land. <clears throat> Where are you gonna find the land? One innovative idea I've proposed, and I've never publicly said it until today, <coughs> is uh, I, I did privately discuss with people in the city, I'd like to party with, partner with the county to possibly do a large reclaimed uh, lake at Toy Town. We could have it insulated so it won't have chemicals in it, you know, because right. Toy Town's contaminated. But the land is set, sat there vacant. I'd like to have a reservoir there which we can use for our reclaimed water source. So there's no more people injections. Creative solution. Affordable housing is a big <coughs> buzzword going around. Is it is it simply unrealistic as an expectation that hourly workers like waiters and bartenders can afford to live downtown or is the goal of affordable housing to allow these <clears throat> folks to be able to live downtown if they wanted to? The answer is sadly yes. You are not gonna have people moving forward. Downtown is gonna become priced out. Uh, I can't afford to live downtown if I wanted to as a percentage of <clears throat> what I wanna spend. That being said, um, we want people living in our city, period. Right. If you look at our police force, well over 50% of our police force does not live in St. Petersburg. Wow. It's not because they don't want to live in St. Petersburg. They all do. They can't mm -hmm. afford to. So we, and I did an interview earlier today talking about the artist community. The arts community, the people who make this city special with all the murals, the muralists can't afford to live here. 
pretty soon if nobody can afford to live here besides you know tech moguls we're right. gonna lose everything in st pete so i just want to make sure that people are staying somewhere in the city you know one stat that gets tossed around all the time especially by administration is that we have a reduction in poverty in the last five years it's actually very true if you want to not look any further into it it's true we have less poverty today than we had one year ago two years ago five years ago but do you want to know why that poverty is reduced why? it's reduced because we have forced people out of our city oh. we've effectively gentrified people we've pushed the poverty to other parts of the county we've pushed them to lelman we've pushed them to pine house park or we've pushed them completely out of the area so we're just moving poverty around we're not curing it we're sweeping it under the rug or out of the room oh. and that's not how it should be so I do want people to live here. And to, to circle back to affordable housing, there's no one answer to it, but I have pushed the needle more than anybody over the last two years. And I have about five answers that I think will work in concert. Uh, a couple of them are <clears throat> utilizing density on city land. So we have a thing called the Sunshine Center. It's a senior center uh, on Mirror Lake. It's a piece of garbage, okay? We met out of there for city council meetings when I first got on council and um, it's a very deficient senior center. We need a senior center though in the city. What I'd like to do is give that to a developer who commits to tear it down at developer expense, rebuild a new senior center at the developer's expense and go vertical above it. So I want them to have a minimum of 30% affordable senior housing and they can go market rate above this. Why does that help us? Because it gets us a free new municipal building for the city, not at taxpayer expense, at developer's expense. It gets us affordable housing which we don't currently have because we're increasing the density on that site. And it turns a sitting single-use building, which is the uh, Sunshine Center, and it starts deriving income on it because we can tax the market rate units. So we can actually have a developer build this municipal building for free and affordable housing, and we can get paid for it in perpetuity. We need to think of creative solutions like that. Another solution is <clears throat> my first month on council, uh, there's a thing called the Building Permit Special Revenue Fund. We run a surplus of like, we had a surplus of like $15 million. Statutorily in 2019, uh, state legislature said you can only have one year's uh, reserve or uh, income in reserves. So we have to burn down like $10 million, which we started to do, but it's a slow process. I pushed the last two years and I got a bill filed at the state level by Representative Rayner. And we're going to refile it next year because it was ultimately unsuccessful. But I want to change the permit structure for affordable housing so that you can discriminatorily waive permit fees completely for affordable housing projects as part of the burn down. People were saying at the state level, well, gee, how do we come up with the money? You don't come up with the money. We already have it. It'll be a statewide change that allows municipalities, if they so choose, to opt into waiving permit fees. <clears throat> Third thing is, let me get back to what you started with, the lowest income earners. You know, again, St. Pete's economy is basically service industry. We want to diversify and we need to diversify, but it's service industry based. You know, how does that person who's working at McDonald's or working a minimum wage job ever get a home of their own or build equity? We can give them affordable housing all they want, but rents are going to keep escalating. The only way to have true equity, racial or otherwise, is through financial equity, which is why I've pushed forward for a plan to take... Uh, we subsidize affordable housing projects. We give the developer sixty, seventy thousand dollars a unit now to do it. It's crazy, and we're only helping the one twenty percent AMI. Wow. 
Yeah. 120% AMI, you're making 60000 or more dollars a year. There's a big gulf between somebody who's homeless or a low-income minimum wage worker and somebody who's making sixty-two that grand a year, which is an executive at a lot of companies. What I'd like to do is start buying condos, because you can still buy condos for between fifty dollars and $100,000 in the city with central AC, concrete block, and giving the mortgages to people at no, no interest or low interest rates for the lowest income earners. And that way it benefits us in multiple ways. First of all, we don't actually give away money. We can recoup the money right. so we can keep the project going in perpetuity. Second of all, it allows people who work in the city to stay in the city and you can build equity. So down the road when you're doing great and you have kids, you can sell the place, take the equity out and buy your dream home. It's, it's a hand up, not a hand out. Right. Because when we're just giving handouts, it doesn't get us anywhere. And Tropicana Field, I guess, is, um, I don't follow baseball much, so is it, is it the issue that Tropicana Field will be vacant by 2027 or even earlier if a new stadium is built? So then the question is, what do we do with this space? And I hear um, a lot of people talk about affordable housing there. Is that... Yes. Possible. Certainly. We, we need to do that. I want to do that. But I want to stress one thing to you that's very important to me to get out there. Affordable housing is not binary. And by that I mean I'm tired of hearing all the time administration and others go, well, we need to have affordable housing. We can't have market rate. Hell no. I want both. Right. Okay. And here's why I want both. First of all, there's enough land out there that we can't have both. And second of all, if you only put affordable housing in a neighborhood or you have only an affordable housing uh, community, what do you call that? You call that a housing project. And that's redlining when you put only low income earners, hey, you guys are poor, you make not that much money, go over here. That's wrong. That's how they've been doing it. And that's not how it should be. Right. We need to integrate people. I want the quality of our affordable housing so seamless, and you can do that with my mixed portfolio of condos on the lower end, or you can do it with new construction so that the multimillionaire is living next door to the McDonald's worker and you don't know the difference between quality. That's what's fair and that's what our people deserve. All of our citizens deserve that. Very nice. Why do you like science so much? Well, sorry, I took a sip of drink there. That's but okay, that was my fault. If you, <laughs> Short if question. You, if you look at certainly what's happened over the last two years of the pandemic, we need to lead with science. There was a lot of fear uh, because there was a lot of unknowns. Science is what gets us out of that. You know, I put forward the first that I saw a comprehensive reopening plan in the entire state. It got statewide headlines. Councilman Blackman, and I'd only been in office three months in the pandemic hit. Councilman Blackman put forward a reopening plan. It was phased, it was multiple pages, and I got it from talking to scientists I know and doctors I know. You know, a lot of people sat on their hands when the pandemic hit. I was out there trying to have a reopening plan. I pushed for it hard. When the county commission said they wanted to reopen the beaches, I said, this is stupid. Why would we reopen the beaches first? Let's reopen the businesses first because that puts money in people's pocket. I was on record as saying that. And I even went against uh, the sheriff who, who, who was not happy with that and others. I said, you're taking a risk by reopening the beaches for our first responders and for anyone in the public health. Let's reopen businesses and have social distancing, outdoor dining. Everything I pushed for was ultimately implemented, and I was a leader. DeSantis basically adopted exactly what my plan was a week and a half, two weeks later. I'm not saying he took it from me, but I'm saying I had a measured scientific approach. So we need science for everything, but also economic opportunity. We are in St. Petersburg, Florida, which is in Pinellas County. Pinellas County is a peninsula on a peninsula. We ain't getting any more land. 
We're not going to have farmland. We can't sprawl out like Tampa can. We are not mainland. Got to go up. <laughs> we need to go up and we need to be smart. So if we want any true economic opportunity other than service industry and we want to diversify, we need to do it in tech. Or there's good paying jobs in marine science. Look at the red tide situation we're having right now. If only we had more educated local people to deal with this problem, they could be making good money and they could be supporting their family. You know, there's, it's become apparent in the last couple of years that like 90% of African American children don't have access to uh, STEM education or, or adequate access. We need to bridge that gap. We need to start creating generational wealth for people. And you know, one thing, I'm not going to name names, but lots of people I deal with, especially in government, we hire people in the city level from out of town and we try and lure people away, but we're competing with municipal governments you know, nationwide. And these are basically mercenaries. They'll go where the highest salary is, right. the best quality of life, but they'll go somewhere else if the salary is better. Guess what? If you're a local, you're gonna take that pay cut to help out your hometown because by golly, you feel connected and a kinship with where you were raised. Mm. That's why I'm trying to run for mayor and I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm born and raised here and I know for a fact that all of my success has been a product of the St. Pete's success as a whole. And you help save the Science Center or? Well, I'm trying to. So it's been two years of fighting tooth and nail. Um, I tried to spin it at first like the mayor was on board. The mayor hates it. He's been trying to tear it down. I have all the support of the neighboring neighborhood associations. Let me just give you the math on it. You can never go to that science center if you, if you don't want to, and it's still gonna benefit you. Why? It's a 30,000 square foot facility that we bought to expand the wastewater plants because our wastewater plant backs up to it. We're putting the tanks in there, but we have this 30,000 square foot facility that's concrete block. The replacement cost of that, estimated by our city, is $400 a foot to yeah. build it. Yeah. That's $12 million in the building alone, not including the land. So why not preserve it? It would cost a million dollars just to scrape the land and clear it for any new build. So what I want to do is I want to revitalize it as a science center, but also um, I want to turn it into an emergency storm shelter, which will benefit everybody in that neighborhood because it's built like a tank. It's all concrete block, even the interior walls. All we have to do is replace the windows with storm rated windows. And what I want to do is I want to turn it into a, basically a food hall or a shopping mall of science where we have multiple different scientific organizations that are outward facing and by that I mean they teach classes to children all under one roof as opposed to a single uh, user facility like it used to be. I already have Pathfinder Outdoor Educations on board to do tree climbing and tree build or team building and you know identification of, of native plants. Great Explorations wants to be involved. Uh, Water Warrior Marine Alliance wants to be involved. I spoke with Sierra Clubs on board. With, this is a big tent thing where I've got Senator Rousson, he's but a Democrat. What's Mayor Christman against it for? I don't want to put motivations to anybody, and I don't want to disparage, but it seems like it's a kind of not created here problem. I don't know why. Uh, he and I have a frictious relationship if you do a quick Google search. Yes, I know that. Um, and I don't want to disparage the mayor, but I don't know why. I really tried to get him on board, and he's fought against me a lot, and it's unfortunate. Mm. Parking. Uh, people who come from larger cities say to me that parking could be a lot worse actually uh, when I complain about parking still to drive downtown and circle the blocks until a spot is seen seems like the norm these days um, what about former mayoral candidate Vince Nowicki's idea to cut off all vehicles on Central from maybe 2nd to 9th or 16th Street make a huge pedestrian mall 
restaurants can put their tables out, lots of places to walk. What's your view on that? Uh, super positive and super negative at the same time. That is a great idea. I, I think we should implement it. It's something I want to do, but look at Bourbon Street in New Orleans. Right. You can still travel down it during the day. They shut it off at night. And like weekends or something. That's exactly right. Yeah. I think it needs to be an access road still, but Central Avenue between 2nd and 4th, there's no reason any longer for that to be a, um, a vehicular driveway. Uh, it certainly works real well for Denver and Nashville and some other places. You could certainly take Boulder. I would say certainly between certainly between second and fourth. I'm um, thinking further west. Fifth, you could do as well. Sixth, you could do as well. West of that, it starts getting dicier. Yeah. But um, you got to, the thing is though. I'll say this: all the time in government, I have this talk with people. People's ideas are so big. And we try and implement them, then nothing gets done. It's an all or nothing. It's again, it's a binary thing. Sometimes you need to turn, turn the stove on before the pot starts boiling. You know, let's maybe do a block, two blocks to start with. If it's a success, we keep yeah. expanding westward. I agree with that. Rick Baker's book, Seamless City, which was about his administration, talks about he talks about doing 34 debates when he ran for mayor. 34. And I had to relook at his book to make sure I got that right. And sure, sure it is, 34 debates. We've had a crowded debate uh, already via Zoom, uh, and there's been candidate forums. But they seem unsatisfying for some reason. There's something about getting everybody together in the same room. Where did the debates go? I wish I knew. I, my favorite part of campaigning is debates and I only wish more people would hear them. You know, a lot of times I'll go to a debate, <clears throat> I'll crush it, in my opinion, and I'll hear my same ideas back the next week. So I have to innovate and it keeps me on my toes. Uh, anytime you put a microphone in front of me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go. I'm it gonna just seems odd that not long ago there was 34 and now there's one. Well, the thing is people just don't know about them. I think I've been to seven or eight already and I have five next week, five debates, and that's in air quotes, next week. The thing is, nobody's knowing about these things and nobody's going. And a lot of that is because the mainstream media in our, in our metro has gone by the wayside. You know, the Times coverage has been reduced. Television has been reduced to sound bites. Uh, and people just don't care about their municipal offices, which is sad because it's where the most control and power is. But, um, you know, I, I really, really appreciate all the forums. I wish they'd let you just kind of have a bare free for all yeah, yeah because i like yeah lincoln douglas whenever i've tried to push stuff you know i've been told in the past well this is a forum this isn't a debate i want an actual debate because i'm happy to do that you know and and i think hopefully when we go into the general election you're down to two you're going to have to have real debates as opposed to just you know including every candidate for the sake of doing it by zoom or whatever but i know vince has talked about setting one up i hope he does that um Let's see. Why can't we have national chains downtown, but Amazon can deliver all over the place downtown? Ruth's Chris is allowed, but we can't have a McDonald's or a 7-Eleven. Like right there at that corner would be a great 7-Eleven. But apparently they, they don't allow national chains. So it's funny you say that because that building was pitched to me a couple times. They said, we can get a 7-Eleven here if you want. But, um, you know, I'm really a free market guy, right? You know, build a better mousetrap and you're gonna you're gonna do well. But 
the thing is we have changed downtown and we should allow uh, always competition it breeds innovation it breeds success so i look at like we have had change downtown we had a bunch of subways right the subways are all going by the wayside because yeah. people wanted to spend local we had a five guys two blocks away from where we are where's that five guys today it's gone because people wanted to support their local businesses we have a hooters downtown we have Publix downtown we have starbucks downtown so there are chains we've tried to make things and set the, the field so that small businesses can succeed in terms of ordinance that's great but the free market has also pushed rents up that a lot of these small businesses can't compete even as right. it is that's why you have to always be nimble and innovating and i think you're going to see what i see happening let me pivot on that really quickly what i see happening in the very near future is businesses growing outwards they're going to grow west they're going to grow south and i see a lot of business headed down 16th street south 16th Street South is set up exactly like downtown. It's all densely packed storefronts with parking in the front and they're all along a nicely, and I'm using air quotes again, nicely landscape because it was and it's been allowed to go to pot by the city media. We want every neighborhood to be equal. That being said, I don't want this spreading out to gentrify historic inhabitants and I, that's why I want to give out grant money for people from neighborhoods to open businesses in their neighborhoods. Okay. What's your view on all these scooters everywhere? Is it a liability? Seems dangerous. Competes with Segway renters and you know, it's a government provided service competing with private industry. So the scooters were pretty much baked in by the time I got on council. I ultimately voted uh, in an unanimous vote to approve the final contract. And my take on them is this. I've seen a lot of cities that have implemented scooters. Memphis, Tampa, they're everywhere, they're a mess. We did regulate it right by putting these corrals out for them. Yeah. The second thing is we make a huge profit from these things. We make $30,000 a month off these scooters and growing because we get like a dollar a day a scooter. So every time they add a scooter, we get another dollar per day. So multiply it by 30 each month, 365 a year. Um, I have been an advocate for using that money for creative solutions like, and again, I, I'm a fiscal guy, but I'm also a safety net guy, and I want to put people back on the road to success. So somebody reached out to me a couple months ago and said, can you have a reduction in fees for the bike share program for people who are at need and use it for primary form of transportation? I said, absolutely not. I will never support that. Because if you are renting a bicycle to get to work, you are already so cost burdened that you are behind the eight ball and you'll never catch up. I said, we make enough money in, in scooter rentals. Why don't we carve off some of that money and give bicycles to those who are the most vulnerable or most in need. That way, bicyclists can maybe get a job. And again, some won't, some will. But we can take the gamble with the money we're getting off these scooters. And then all of a sudden you see somebody go from experiencing homelessness to having a bike, they can get to work, they get a job, then maybe they can get one idea. of the mortgages we're talking about for the 40 to 80% AMI. You know like there, I'm there's about. a warehouse somewhere full of bicycles. Absolutely. Stolen bikes that the owner can't be found, but they got them and they just sit there. The problem is a lot of those need work. So I've gone down that road too, and the refurbishing process is, it's not reliable, but you give somebody a bike, you get them a job, then you give them a mortgage like I'm talking about for the lowest income earners where their whole out the door nut is maybe five, 600 a month. They start building equity. You can go from homeless to a job and a home, you know, in a matter of months. It's funny, because that's my next question. How, how can we help the homeless that are what I call regulars, always around, not just traveling through the area, not troublemakers, 
it's largely a mental health substance abuse issue I think what what's because nothing's being I mean I see this one lady all the time yep. and I um, I just wonder what can be done for that so treatment compassion and opportunity I shouldn't have put compassion in the middle but it is the most important treat everybody like a human being um, if somebody's experiencing mental health issues we need to get them treatment not just treat them like a problem right that needs to be dismissed you know we're not that far recessed from the fact of sending people on a one-way bus ticket and we still offer bus tickets to the city of st petersburg if you have somebody on the receiving end who you know who we can verify that's still an offered program um, but we need to start owning it and knowing that everybody matters in this city again like i said every citizen is a shareholder in the company that is st pete so offering treatment offering temporary shelter but also offering a hand up right to those who, who, who need it um want to kind of finish with the competition that you're up against um, and I guess I'll start with Pete Bolin uh, second registered Republican in the nonpartisan race he highlights his restaurateur experience and management of 60 employees doesn't he seem like more of a threat than what you're making him out to be you know Pete is I consider a friend um, the only threat that I see for myself is hours in the day. My biggest competition is the number 24. Because <laughs> it's 24 hours in a day. That's it. You know, Pete is a good guy. He cares about this city. Um, you know, I got nothing bad to say about him. It's just, you, you, you look at the polling and, and there's two tiers of candidates. There's a tier that's polling high and there's a tier that's polling low. And I, I don't look at the polls, you know, that closely. I mean, I do look at them, but... I just need to work to be the best me I can be to make St. Pete the best city it can be. It's all about living up to your own potential. And, you know, I wish Pete, you know, much success in life, but uh, I, I can't worry about what somebody else has got going on. I just have to make the most efficient usage of my time. Commissioner Ken Welch, I heard someone ask <laughs> if there was any difference between a 20-year city employee and a 20-year county commissioner. The point being, would we want a career civil servant serving as mayor? I'm pro-private sector, and I feel that's a, that's a better proving ground for leadership. What's your view of Commissioner Welch's bid for mayor? Ken Welch, great guy. Uh, been, in, uh, or been running for mayor for two years, <clears throat> been in office for 20. He, um, you know, candidly, he's been in office since I was in elementary school. And that's <laughs> right. not an exaggeration. Right. Um, you know, he was, he was in office when the Y2K bug was still a, a real concern. Um, the thong song was lighting up the charts. You know, people were still using dial-up internet. It's been a long time and it's been a long road. I like Ken a lot, but we didn't hear any fresh new ideas from him when he was in his 30s. We didn't hear any when he was in his 40s. He's now almost all the way through his 50s and he's expecting that going into his 60s, he's gonna be this, this young dog with new tricks and I just I don't see it and I don't see how he can do it I think he's going to be another iteration of you know the mayor uh, Mayor Christman and if you like Mayor Christman Ken Welsh is a, is a good option for you I tend to skew towards the a little bit of a disruptor vibe because you know again the city's doing good but we're not anticipating that downside and that's what I want to anticipate is the downside when we when we do have the, the economy start going backwards like it went on Foster, what the heck do you do? And Bill Foster 
doesn't get nearly enough credit. I'm not trying to pivot here, but I, I need to. He was one of the greatest mayors we ever had. Not because anything wonderful was able to be done, but because he was able to stop the boat from sinking. Mm. You know, he was a heck of a captain. And that's what you sometimes need. And, and it's easy for anybody to wave a baton, you know. One term, wasn't he? Times are good. He was one term because he wasn't able to do more because of constraints. You know, he was having to fire people, lay people off, not do increases. Uh, it was a bad time to be mayor, yeah. and he got us through that. And I have nothing but respect and admiration for Mayor Foster Interesting. because of that. Um, former state representative Wayne Gay Newt Newton. I'm trading emails with his campaign managers. I'm looking forward to interviewing him. The paper says he often surprises when he wins elections because he's always considered an underdog for some reason. Seems perfectly well known enough to compete from what I know about him. What are his chances? I love Wendy Newton. <clears throat> I refer to him before his county commission loss as Teflon Newton. I used to call him that. And I, you know, I, I helped him out a lot for county commission. I also helped out uh, my good friend, uh, Frank Peterman, you know, former state rep, Department of Juvenile Justice head, and, um, <clears throat> and uh, city council member. Um, Wenge is a great guy. He and I uh, think a lot alike in that he's got a heck of a lot of energy. He's tenacious. He likes to tackle a problem head on. He's not scared of a fight. That being said, if you look at polling over the last year since he's been in, he was strong to start with, and he hasn't gone up because he doesn't have the campaign infrastructure and he hasn't raised the money to move the needle through paid uh, media and, and, and through you know a, a real concentrated effort. I love Wengay. I think he would actually be a good mayor because I think he could delegate, hopefully. I just don't see him pulling this one off. 20-year-old political phenom Michael Ingram. He is very smart, progressive Democrat who wants to be mayor. We had a great interview. He helped me see that it isn't too out of this world to think about electing younger people. And he cited examples of some pretty young politicians out there. I'm sure he won't win, but do you think if he caught fire in some way, he could take as much as 10% from what may otherwise go to Ken, Wenge, or Darden? No, I, I don't think so. It's it's too late to kind of fire up the base. I mean, mail ballots go out next week. Uh -huh. You know, the election's in 45 days. So, <clears throat> you know, Michael Ingram, let me be very clear. I was so impressed with the Bay News 9 debate. He did great. That kid is smart. That being said, he doesn't have the community connections, and he hasn't shown up to even enough of the forums he's been invited to to get his messaging out there. Just it's going to be a problem with the inability to message, uh, but the fact that he's performed, I think the guy's very smart. You did the interview, uh, but when I was I've met impressed. him, I've been very impressed. I think he's got a bright future ahead of him. I just don't see how he, how he catches fire this time. What about perceived impediments? And this will be what I can conclude on. Um, the paper likes to paint the picture that you're like a bull in a china shop, hard charging, kind of my way or the highway. Is that accurate? Yes and no. I agree with everything you said until you said my way or the highway. I am like a bull in a china shop. I am aggressive. And I had a, a meeting right here a couple weeks ago uh, with leaders of the African-American community. And they said, you know, your tone was a little off when you were talking about um, basically a dirty real estate deal that we did in South St. Pete that screwed over the black community. And I took the mayor to task for that. I said, you gave 
the Democratic Party chair who has no development experience and wasn't vetted financially right before mayoral election. You gave her a plot of land in South St. Pete in a historically African-American neighborhood and she hasn't capitalized on that or done anything in four and a half years. Whereas Devron Gibbons, he went against you, an African-American entrepreneur had the rug pulled out from him after two extensions and he'd actually done work. I said, this is not how politics should work. I don't think my tone was bad, but the mayor said, this is disgusting. He demanded I apologize. And I said, I will never apologize for fighting for the people of the city. Here's the deal. I'll always take an arrow on my back. I don't care because this is what I signed up for, right? I have to be scrutinized, but I will never stop fighting for the people. I will never cower or pander to keep a job, to be popular so I can get myself in a parade. No, I will always fight for the job that I was elected to do which is to serve the people. Doesn't work well with others, is that? You know, I, I think I've built consensus on council, believe it or not, it's been the administration I've been against and that's why I wanna just take it all the way. You know, you look at stuff like, I was trying to save a bait shop, a historic 1924 asset for everybody. I was working on it, did it the right way behind the scenes, working with administration. The week before I had it up before a council discussion, the mayor had it bulldozed. <laughs> And I took him to task over that and I said, maybe this was illegal. You know, it's the mayor that, and I who a lot of times butt heads is because he waves a much bigger stick than a council member. Yeah. A lot of them, I respect the heck out of every single person I serve on council with. I respect Darden Rice, I respect Ed Montaneri. They are all learned people who have a completely different life experience than I do. And if you look at that council, I don't think there's ever been a more diverse city council in the history of this city. You have two African-American women for the first time serving simultaneously. You have myself, who was elected as the youngest uh, council member in the history of our city. You have two members of the LGBT community. We are super diverse. And we also have a super majority of women. Six of the eight council members are women, they're female. So that council is very diverse and it's very cool and it's an honor to serve on it. But I don't have a problem with any of my colleagues. It's just the way that the mayor does business is what has led to a lot of this friction. Yeah. And a lot of that will go away after the election. Well, another thing <laughs> that I say, too, is back to that land deal. When I, and I didn't finish that story. I'm sorry. When I was here at Ruby's talking to them, they said, man, we didn't like your tone. I said, are we talking about the issue? Yes. Right. Everyone in this room was talking about the issue of the dirty deal. I said, if we're talking about the issue, in a nasty tone was the way we had to get there, I'll take that road every time because the issue's being brought being forward. Talked about. Sometimes the squeaky wheel gets the grease and if I have to squeak a little bit and people say, man, this guy squeaks a lot, hey, I'll take the barb as long as we're talking about the issue. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate this time that you gave to this interview and um, I guess I wish you the best of luck. <laughs> I will need it. I thank you very much for having me on and. Uh, Look forward to hearing uh, everybody else's as well. Yes. Okay, that's it for episode number four of the Berg Bulletin. I should say Berg Bulletin, not the Berg Bulletin. Excuse me. Anyway, thanks for joining us. I thought that was a really good interview with Councilman Robert Blackman. Uh very smart guy and join me uh, for episode five I'm not going to tell you who this interview is going to be with but you're going to want to hear it I promise you thanks for joining in <laughs>